Hello everyone, welcome to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. My name is Arvid Kahl and I talk about how you can start, run and sell a bootstrap business. This episode is called At a Crossroads, the different kinds of exits. Let's get started. Companies get acquired for quite a few reasons. They're either interesting economically, they may be interesting strategically, the employees are attractive, or they're a thorn in the eye of the acquirer, some sort of foe to be vanquished. Depending on why somebody wants to buy a company, the deal and the whole process of selling may be radically different. In any case, you will likely sell for quite some money. Usually, that money arrives in two parts. One directly when you hand over the company, and another when the transition is completed. The first part is usually a big lump sum, while the second part is a safety retainer. That means to keep the founder engaged and motivated. Right? It's there for you not to run away immediately. As you will need to transition the company over to the acquirer, there will be a period of time when you will need to train the team that takes over and just hand over the reins. In many cases, an earnout may be a part of the exit, which means that your second part of the money is conditional to reaching several business goals for the acquirer over a set period of time. But all of this can vary. So let's talk about the different kinds here. Let's start with the financially motivated acquisition. And before we do that, maybe another idea, because people always ask about sale prices and valuations and how much money you get. You will find that particularly in being acquired as a bootstrap business, you cannot really put your finger on the number before you actually negotiate it. So uh, the, the reason for that is that we are currently in the market where there's a lot going on and there's, a, there's always this kind of discrepancy. Most founders who sell their company sell it for the first time, so they don't really know the value. And most private equity companies or other companies that acquire a business acquire that particular business for the first time. So those, there's no set valuation. Since bootstrap businesses don't have high valuations that have been tediously calculated for some Series A or even a seed fund round, everything is kind of in the air. And every bootstrap business in particular has its own internal financial systems and structures that can vary significantly between businesses. I wouldn't say that VC-funded businesses are all the same, but at least the goals of a VC-funded business are pretty much equal no matter where you look. You try to maximize shareholder value. For a bootstrap business, that is not necessarily the case. And the personal situation of the founder is so much more involved in a bootstrap business. You may, put a, you may have put in like a couple tens of thousands of dollars of your own money if you had to jumpstart the business. You may have put in nothing um, because like in our case with Feedback Panda, the business itself was profitable within a couple of weeks after launching it. Or in some cases, you may have already extracted a lot of money from the business and not reinvested it in the business because it's just going so well. And in this kind of situation where every single bootstrap business is looking very different, even from the profit and loss sheet, um, the, the kinds of technology you use, the kind of skill you have to augment your business with by getting out, going out there and having contractors do the work for you because you're just one person. You can't hire because you don't make enough, but you certainly can pay people by the hour. 
all these things are so different that you will not really find easy ways of calculating the valuation of your business. That means that if you hear people say, oh, we sold for, I don't know, $100,000, and then you hear people say, oh, we sold for a million, they might have actually have run a company with the same MRR, and they may have run a business that has been in the market for the same time, and they may have the same amount of customers, but the internal dynamics of those businesses are so different that the valuations will look different. So when we talk about money here, and um, I really want to stress that point because I've been experiencing people asking about this all the time, you will need to know what you're willing to sell for. And once you sell, then um, you have to negotiate to that value. And if people aren't willing to pay that for your business, well, then maybe it's not big enough just yet and you need to continue growing it for a while to reach that. So just as an aside, before we jump into the kinds of acquisition that can happen, be aware that as the owner of a bootstrap business, you have full control. And unless you need to do a fire sale, which is never really fun and is kind of some sort of last resort, or should be at least, you have full control over what price you sell at. So just throwing that in here before we talk about the kinds of acquisition, because it's something that people always ask me, and why not talk about it? Sorry, financially motivated acquisition. If somebody wants to buy a company because your financial outlook is impressive, your growth rates are high and the future looks bright, they will want to buy as soon as possible and keep the business running as is, as much as they can, right? Because if if you were able to grow it some more to make more money, they want to get in as quickly as they can so they can get that growth, buy it at a lower valuation and then make more money afterwards. That's the most interesting kind of acquisition for a bootstrap founder. Because if buyers reach out to you to buy your business for financial reasons, you know you have done everything right. You have a sellable company. Your company will be a diversified income source and the acquiring company will likely need to find somebody to then fill your position as the owner and operator of the business. So the more documentation and automation you already have in the business, the better. If you've been structuring and running your business the build to sell way, like presented by well, the book Built to Sell by John Warlow, and in a minor extent also by Zero to Salt, the book that I wrote and all the steps in there, you'll be in a very good position to hand it over easily. The value of your company in this case will be determined almost purely by the numbers because it's a financially motivated acquisition. How much can your acquirer expect to make by running the company for a few years? How easy will it be to continue to grow the business without the founder involved? And how easy will it be to transition the business into their organization? The more value and the less work are involved here, the higher the price. It's a pretty simple rule. And acquirers who buy businesses for this reason usually want to get the deal done very quickly. As this growing profitable business, hopefully growing profitable business, is getting more valuable every single day. So the earlier they can get their hands on it, the better. And this will affect the amount of money they will be willing to spend. To entice you to sell it to them sooner than later, they may even pay a premium for your business. So that's the financially motivated acquisition. And honestly, I'm going to talk about a couple more and they may overlap. Just understand that this is not, that these are archetypes, right? These are not uh, the real um, pure existence in the world out there. There will be some that have multiple components and have multiple motivations. But in general, if you're looking at private equity companies like the one we sold to, they buy for financial reasons. 
And many businesses on the market that buy small to medium-sized bootstrap businesses do that because they build a portfolio of companies. They start with one, then they buy another one. Then they at some point they have 10. Then they build a team and they have all these little companies. The team is running it. And it's amazing because you can kind of bundle all your resources in this one team, but it can handle all these properties. And then you just expand the team and you expand the amount of portfolio companies. SureSwift Capital the company that we sold to, and uh, I'm not being paid to say this, but it was an amazing process and we had an amazing time. I think in all my resources that I share on the deal, I've been saying this and I stand by this. We had a really, really smooth transition. We had a great negotiation. We had It was just a wonderful acquisition, which for something that is super scary that you haven't done before ever is quite, I guess, the recommendation. At this point, I think they have 30-something, 34-plus properties in their portfolio. And they have a remote team that works from all over the world to deal with all these properties. So they obviously want to find businesses that are growing to add to their portfolio, to add more growth to the whole and make more money. That's the whole point for the fund, right? So that's financially motivated acquisition. Let's talk about the flip side of this. Let's talk about the strategic motivated acquisitions because some companies out there they acquire purely strategically your business may have an excellent customer base for a segment of the market into which they want to expand or you have some technology that they would rather buy than build themselves it's likely that significant changes will be made to your product if they acquire you and many of your customers will be nudged to buy different products or they will see dramatic price increases so unlike a financial acquisition it's not likely that things will go on just as they did before, right? There's a difference here. And as the founder, you will likely need to stick around for a bit, making sure that the strategic benefit of the acquisition is realized for the company that bought your business. So as things change, you have to be comfortable seeing your vision distorted and realigned with the strategy of another business. And some founders have no trouble getting back into an employee-like position. And others cannot handle it. It's, it's the unemployable that you have to um, yeah, the, uh, not being employable that you have to uh, look out for. And be aware that there will be work, discussions and decisions that may be contrary to your beliefs if you are strategically acquired, while large amounts of your compensation will then also be locked up in the requirement that you stick around for a long time. And I think I'm going to talk about earnouts extensively in a, in a future episode of this podcast, but it's, it's really Im- important to understand that this is likely going to be a part of it. And earnouts and compensation are highly coupled. So the amount of money for which you can sell a company is less easily calculated in this case as well. And because it depends on the unique relationship between the two businesses and the context of the market in which it happens and the contractual obligations. So be prepared to receive completely different offers from different interested parties and all having completely different contractual obligations to the differentiator you look you have to look out for is um, for much more than money is the condition conditions of transitioning your business. Well, it's super hard to say. So be very aware of the earnout conditions in particular, which means you have to stay on as the manager or operator of the business and reach certain business goals that somebody else will set for you. And many founders fulfill their earnout obligations without issues. But there is a large number of entrepreneurs who experience a number of complications. And right here, I can 
again, second time in the podcast, recommend the work of John Warlow, because not only did you write the book Built to Sell, which is amazing, and you should have read before you start a business, because then you can build a sellable business from the start. But he also has Built to Sell Radio, which is a podcast. And on his show, he interviews people who went through acquisitions of all kinds of sizes. You'll have people there who sold for $10,000. You'll have people there who sold for a million, 2 million, 5 million, 10 million, 20 million, 100 million, 200, 400, 500. There is all kinds of businesses in there. And the great part about this podcast is that it is easily consumable. The episodes are like under an hour. And when we went into our acquisition, I did a, a marathon, essentially. I did a John Warno-themed um, marathon. Read the book again, obviously, and then I jumped into the podcast and I think I listened to a hundred something episodes of the show, um, which was quite a bit. But you learn a lot about what are red flags in an acquisition, in a transition, in the whole deal leading up to it during the negotiations. If you listen to founders who've gone through it, because that's the one thing that most of us, even though we may have been entrepreneurs for a while and we may have been building software products for a while, but very few of us me included, or I guess excluded, have gone through um, uh, acquisition before. I even have worked with the concept of selling a business for hundreds and maybe millions, hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars. This is like, even conceptually, there was an amount of money that I did not understand before we went through the process. So you know very little. So having this resource in Built to Sell Radio that where people just openly share as much as they can contractually i guess about the, the process and the kind of little hiccups and problems along the way is extremely valuable if you're going into an acquisition process so if you ever are in this process before or after you sign the letter of intent or like even sign anything talk to people listen to these shows and try to figure out where those people ran into problems and how this could relate to you so that is my advice for particularly the kinds of acquisitions that are more strategic than financial. Because financial is fairly straightforward. You just really need an accountant or somebody to help you with that, if at all, um, to get through all of this. And a, and a lawyer who has been doing this before. But if it's strategic, there are many, many different things. And you will find that when it turns into a strategic acquisition, the kind of outlook that the acquiring party has changes as well. So financial acquisitions is very clear. They want to have your business because it's obviously working and they just want to add it and run it. So transparency on all sides is beneficial, right? They want to be transparent to you. So you sell your very interesting asset to them and you want to be transparent to them so they can see that it's actually a really good business and you get the maximum amount of money. But when it turns into a strategic acquisition now, acquisition, now all of a sudden, people may think, okay, how can we reduce the amount of money we have to pay for this that we want to save money on? Because if they if acquire you for like a piece of technology that they would have bought otherwise, they would also have negotiated down on um, a third-party vendor, right? So they will try to negotiate down the price for your business. And they might go for the cheaper kind of tactics. things like. Um, trying to egg you on or try to, to outmaneuver you legally, put things into your letter of intent, put things into your contract that some lawyers might miss. 
and um, that will give you like a severe disadvantage later down the road, particularly in the earnout cases, right? They might might want to say, well, you have to stick around for five years, you have to reach these growth goals, and we set the budget. And then you start doing this, and the budget is like 20 bucks a month, right? So you can never reach those goals. So all of the money that was supposed to go to you in the earnout will never get there because they can just blatantly give you a zero budget and you cannot reach the goals unless you like magically out entrepreneur yourself in this position. But it's likely not going to happen. And that might be a conscious choice. Not saying that many companies do this, but if they are incentivized to save as much money as they can, you can see how there's misalignment between your goals as a bootstrap founder trying to make as much money as you can and their goal to save as much money as you can, right? The alignment is definitely a bit off. In a financial acquisition, it's different. Their alignment is pretty clearly almost parallel. Like you want to make money, they want to make money. They're going to split with a big chunk of theirs expecting to make much more in the future. So there's the difference between those two. Finally, there's two more things that I want to talk about. The next one is the talent-motivated acquisition. And we all know this. In rare cases, a company that might just is interested in you, not for your financials, not for your tech, they want to buy your company to get access to your talent. And it's usually called an acquihire. And this supposes a certain size of your business, but particularly with the skilled technical talent that surface, surfaces through the technical um, seen in, in bootstrapping right now, it could happen at any size. Like if you found a really cool business with just two people or a three, four founders in the beginning, and one of them is like a 400x developer, that might be interesting enough for somebody to buy your whole business. So if you're reliably present in the bootstrapper and indie maker scene, certain companies will look at you and your spirited effort as a potential addition to their equally ambitious team. So if you're a solo founder, you can... Uh, actually, yeah, this can put you into a very interesting situation. A company may want to hire you for several reasons, and some can work very well for founders. Look at Stripe and their acquisition of the Indie Hackers forums. They got a wonderful entrepreneur. They got many wonderful entrepreneurs with that. Developers and community leaders, particularly in Cortland Allen and his brother. And the Indie Hackers community can trust the fact that Stripe will keep the community running for a long time because obviously Stripe is also interested in getting immediate access to founders who are just starting out and need a payment processor. So it's a win for the acquirer. It's a win for for, um, the Allen brothers. And it's a big win for the community. And that is awesome, right? That is a talent-motivated acquisition that we all benefit from at this very moment. So this kind of acquisition happens most often for businesses who are quite young or aren't very profitable yet. And at a certain point, the value of the business in question will shift acquirers to put in an offer for financial reasons as well as the business itself and not just its owner becomes an interesting thing to have access to. So um, you can kind of feel that with every new acquisition that I'm just talking about, it gets worse, right? Financially acquisition, best alignment of incentives, um, most potential kind of money you can make and then strategic acquisition alignment is kind of off and they might try to trick you in a way and they don't really buy you for your business they buy you for other reasons talent motivated acquisition they just don't buy you for your business at all they just want you and then there's number four which i call the nuclear option and that's the, the worst for i guess the future of your business and the future of you a competitor may just want to buy your company take over your customers and shut down your product 
and then bind you to a non-compete for a couple of years. So you can't build anything to compete with them. And usually founders like this option the least, obviously, as nobody wants to see the business they built so carefully being eliminated and forgotten. But this kind of exit is always a last resort option. And it will usually come at a hefty discount for the buyer as well. They understand that if you don't have any other offers, they can offer whatever they want and you'll have to take it. So try to find a strategic buyer at least so you can have some leverage in negotiating your price. but. If you have no other option, um, selling it for somebody to, sh- to get your customers and shut it down is an option, at least. So whatever kind of offer comes your way, understand that they're all signs of interest in your business and nothing more. You don't have to fear missing out on the perfect offer. Because if your business has value, you will get multiple offers eventually. You can actively seek out buyers yourself or have a broker do the work for you or just wait for offers to come in. In the end, it's all optional. And you don't have to sell your business if you do not want to. So if you want to, try and find an acquirer who wants to acquire your business for financial reasons. This kind of exit will have the clearest alignment between buyer and seller interest. And there's a lot of useful information available from other founders on this because many strive to sell to for financial reasons. So the experiences of those people are well documented and it will quite likely yield the highest offers you could get for your business. I've written about this topic and many more in my book, Zero to Sold. You can purchase it from Amazon and from Gumroad and you'll find out more on zerotosoldbook.com. Thank you for checking it out. Today, I want to respond to a few questions that were sent in by listeners. Arvid, Tom Sullivan here, one of your loyal Twitter followers. The question is about third parties whether that be brokers, bankers, or even attorneys. Um, At what point in a deal would you include these types of folks? And how would you get ready to to work most efficiently or effectively with those people, seeing as that they're incentivized in different ways? Thanks. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much for the question. That is a really good one. I think... It really depends on the third party. You mentioned brokers, bankers, and lawyers. And I have a feeling that every single one of these has a different spot during your own journey where they should appear. Particularly with the lawyers is something that I can speak to from from personal experience. We did not involve a lawyer in our negotiation because it was really just talking more like a cursory kind of conversation about like, do we fit right with the, the private equity company or the person that would want to buy a company. This is like a, for the lack of a better term, a culture fit or not. And at that point, we didn't want to involve any third party because it was really about us figuring out if this was somebody who we want to sell to. And I know this is different for every business because every business kind of gets acquired for different reasons, as I laid out in, in this episode. But I have a feeling that it also highly depends on how you, as the founder, want to approach this. Some people armor up. Right? Some people are from countries where there is a lot of uh, lawsuit stuff going on. I'm from Germany where this is not necessarily the case. So I have a fairly high trust threshold with negotiations and interactions with people without needing to involve um, legal counsel. And like I said, other people are more easily intimidated by the complexity of this process and they just get a lawyer to be on the safe side, which is perfectly fine. But for us, 
we only ever really considered getting a lawyer when it came to actually signing documents, right? When there was a document that was in some way binding legally. And you, you have to understand with the letter of intent, the LOI, and that usually gets exchanged in uh, an acquisition like this, that even though the LOI itself does not cover a binding offer, the parties can still retreat from it, it has some kind of binding quality. You cannot talk to other parties while this negotiation or while the due diligence and all these things surrounding it are going on. So as soon as you are presented with a piece of paper that you have to sign and that has legal implications for yourself, I would at least have a lawyer look over it. You don't necessarily need them to, to work too much for you. You don't need them to, to actually interact as your counsel at this point and do this stuff for you. You can still do it yourself, but they should have a look at the legitimacy of the document itself. And there's a lot of reputation that goes into these things as well, right? We sold to a private equity company that prides itself on being an honest and transparent and just benign company that buy SaaS businesses. So you kind of have to expect that if they were to trick you, that would kind of spill back into the community of future businesses that they want to purchase, that they want to acquire. So kind of can, on some level at least, expect that they won't try to trick you as much. And then again, there are acquisitions, again, like I said earlier, that are more predatory in nature, that try to get you off the market or try to get to your customers and stuff. And at that point, I would get a lawyer quite soon. Like the moment you start actually exchanging information with um, the, this company that might want to acquire you. Again, this is all just hypothetical at this point because nothing has been signed. If there is information that they can actually use against you or use to their own benefit without including you in the profits, well, that, then you might want to have somebody like draft some paperwork that makes this um, something less dangerous for yourself. So depending on the kind of acquisition that you're looking at, and that could be an overt kind of acquisition or something where they act like they want to acquire you for financial reasons, but they really just want to get you off the market. You never know. That's your judgment to make as a founder. And if you cannot make this judgment, involve a lawyer who's done this before, who's been part of these proceedings, who has done this for other companies and who may have this kind of sense um, of how this is actually going to end just from their own experience. So that's what I would say about lawyers. And, and bankers, we didn't involve one in our case because our business, as um, valuable as it was, it was pretty straightforward when it came to financials and we didn't have any loans or we didn't have any complicated financial instruments in it. So it wasn't really required. So I cannot speak to that. I would um, suggest that you talk to somebody either who has done this with a banker or you just listen to all the episodes of the Built to Sell radio podcast by John Warlow because in I think more than half of them bankers were involved. So that podcast is a source of a lot of information that can help you with this. But I can definitely speak to brokers because we kind of almost involved one in um, selling our business and then decided not to because the conversations we had with the potential acquirers were still really manageable. But a broker is somebody that if you choose to involve them, you should involve them from the start. Because not only will a broker help you find the right buyer for your business, they will also help you prepare your business for the whole process. So unless you have um, an expert on your team who's done this before, or I, I guess trying to be humble here, read my book and followed the steps, 
which gets you to a certain point. It may not be the final point for your business, but it may definitely be a point where you're better prepared than if you had never spent a minute to think about this. You should probably involve them from the start to just help you get to the level where your business becomes even more sellable, right? I always talk about the sellability of a business as a mark of the quality of the business. A business that runs well, that is well automated, that is highly documented and where you can easily be replaced as the person operating the business, well, that's a sellable business. And the broker will give you slight tips that make your already potentially sellable business even more sellable, thus increasing the kind of premium that you could get. So if you want to go with a broker, the moment you decide you want to sell your business is the moment you should involve a broker or multiple, at least. It depends, right? You can still kind of do your own due diligence on the different brokers that are out there. And there are lots. I mean, there are plenty. Let's call them plenty because there's a lot of shady ones and there's a few really good ones. And um, the, the ones that have renown in the industry, I guess, right? The, the good ones like FE International or Empire Flippers, these kind of brokers. If you want to go with them, go with them quickly. And in, in general, this kind of sums up in, in maybe a way that you didn't hope me to respond, but it sums up what I think about third parties. Every third party has a particular time and it's up to you until which moment you feel comfortable to then involve them at this point. So if you're great at numbers, you probably might not need a banker until the very last period of your um, acquisition, if at all. And if you're already quite clear about the legal implications of this because you've done it before, you because have access to somebody who has, then you might not need to involve a lawyer until a later point. But if you're if you're scared that somebody might take advantage of you and you have to understand that private equity and the acquisition of businesses is often a cutthroat kind of industry, then I would ra- suggest to rather get somebody a professional, a legal professional, a financial professional, or whatever kind of professional you need involved quite early. And when it comes to them being incentivized differently, that's a very interesting point as well. I would definitely go with somebody who has been doing this before and who has some reputation to lose. Like the, the one thing that every one of these experts, every one of these professionals have that keeps them in the market is their reputation. And if you have a lawyer who works for themselves but doesn't work for their clients, they will not have a good reputation and people will not want to go to them. So even though some lawyers may um, have zero experience in the the M&A kind of field, they may still want to uphold their reputation when they work with you and do good work, right? So you can't really say, oh, this is is just a regular lawyer, can't help us with that. If they think about um, keeping their reputation up, they might really put in the work. But obviously, you have a better chance of getting good work done if you get somebody who's been working in the field, right? We got an M&A lawyer to look over our documents. And even though he's usually working on much bigger deals, he looked into ours and he helped us like navigate through the little things that we didn't observe that he looked at, but and he found. But they, they weren't any, there wasn't anything dangerous. It was just, oh yeah, did you think of this? Like, do you understand what this means? That kind of stuff, right? And we had a nice conversation. He looked through the document and particularly with uh, the SureSwift stuff, the, the company we sold to, he said this was the most boring document he ever looked at, which I guess is something really good when it comes to legal documents because there's nothing surprising in there. So it was, it was nice to have a professional who's seen the non-boring stuff to tell us that there was boring stuff. But I think his... Um, incentive wasn't to make as much money as he possibly could because 
he's been like doing business or he's been doing legal work in in the in business of like hundreds of millions up to billions of um, transaction volume, right? When when it comes to selling businesses, and then our small SaaS that didn't go as high as that, obviously, was not really something where he could do a lot of work on and would need to do a lot of work on. And he, he knew our financials as well. So there wasn't really that much for him to gain. So he put in good work, but he didn't try to stretch it. So his incentive was not to make as much money out of us as possible. And that wasn't just because there wasn't much money to be made. It was also because he was highly rep- reputable as an M&A lawyer here, here in Berlin. Like he came at the highest, one of the highest recommendations. We have a couple people that do this Shark Tank stuff here in Germany too. Lion's Den, I think, uh, is what we call it here. And we, we just talked to one of those people, one of the, the judges on the show, and asked him to recommend us a good M&A lawyer. And he did. So he came at, with, with some added reputation by a guy who also doesn't want to lose reputation. right? So t- try to find the people who really are repu- reputable and... Then your incentive alignment problem won't be as strong. It will still be kind of there because people monetize differently than you do. But um, if there's reputation involved, you usually have a good chance that this is going to go your way. Thank you very much for the question. Hey, Arvid. Hey, this is Damon from Indialog. I just want to ask you a personal question. So after you sold Feedback Panda, I know you mentioned from Indie Hackers podcast that it is a life-changing amount. So how did you keep yourself motivated and how did you find the next thing to do, like uh, writing the book Zero to Soap and what's your passion behind it? Uh, That is my question. Thank you. Hey, Damon. Thank you so much for the question. Also, you were the first person to send in a question. So thank you extra much for that. Um, After we sold the business, how did I keep myself motivated? Well, that's a good question because it was extremely hard. It was surprisingly hard. And it was particularly surprising because I knew that something like this, something exactly like this would happen, right? Because uh, everything um, that people will tell you who have sold a business, who got acquired, includes at least one statement about how surprising it was to fall into this void after running the business 24-7 for, for years, many years, sometimes even decades, and then having to stop completely and having nothing to do. That was one of the things that I knew it was coming. I expected it, and then it came in an unexpected way. Because, um, yeah, we we sold the business, and the transition was fairly easy because we had prepared the business to be highly transitionable, right? Everything was documented pretty well. Um, It was extremely automated. We already had um, kind of people, not necessarily as employees, but working for us on certain things that we wanted to hand over and had already handed over. And hiring our replacements was particularly easy. Something that I had always dreaded was all of a sudden quite simple and was not much of an effort at all. People were like swarming to the business trying to, to take our jobs, I guess, and we we gave it to them. So the handing over our per- personal involvement in the business was pretty quick. So a couple of weeks in, after actually starting to transition over the business, we were doing pretty much nothing. And for somebody like me, who's, I wouldn't call myself a workaholic because I'm lazy, but I do need some purpose in my life and I do need to do something because obviously if you work in in programming and coding, you have those tools to make magic happen. So you just get used to making magic happen all the time. And there I was, having sold the business, not having anything to do, not having the purpose that you asked for. I, I wasn't sure what my purpose was, but I, I knew that after we took a little vacation, because we hadn't had a vacation in two years, 
there was something that I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do was actually reflecting on what I had just done. Because we were so involved with the business the whole time. We were just working every single day. We woke up thinking about Feedback Panda. We went to bed thinking about Feedback Panda, right? In between, we were working on Feedback Panda and then we were likely also dreaming about Feedback Panda. I forgot, but there were a couple of dreams in there, so somewhere. And that didn't really leave much space to reflect. It didn't leave much space to reflect on what we were currently doing. I mean, that was the kind of reflection that we needed to do to keep the business aligned, but it didn't really leave much time for that either. So we had to pencil it in um, often into an already existing pretty full schedule. And it didn't leave any kind of room to reflect on the learnings in a, in a way that would allow me to communicate them to other people, not just act on them innately, just almost in an instinctive way, right? Understanding, okay, we don't do paid advertising because we know that word of mouth works much better. So we put all our efforts into building a community. That's something that we never really codified. It's just something that we did because we saw that it was working. But never ever did we think about, okay, how can we turn this into something that could constitute like a blog article right? or, or something, a book even, or a chapter in a book? Never was that a thought. So here I was having stopped working on this and finally I had time to reflect. And the first thing I did was, okay, now that I have time to reflect, I'm noticing that there's a lot of stuff that I learned that I haven't read about before because nobody ever told me about this stuff. Maybe they, they told me about it in a way that I didn't understand because their own experience was different. Or they told me, um, they wrote a book that I hadn't read, right? Just the information may have been out there, but I didn't see it. I hadn't found it yet. And I looked pretty carefully for these kind of things. Like in the time leading up to founding Feedback Panda, I was reading all the time. For two years, I was um, zooming across Germany on a train for two and a half hours there and two and a half hours back three times a week. That's 15 hours a week where I was reading, I was listening to podcasts, I was like taking in information. And 15 hours a week for 100 weeks, that's uh, 1,500 hours. And, and that's a lot of books and that's a lot of podcasts. So if I hadn't come across the information there, where was it? So I thought, well, I guess... Since I had not found all of this stuff out there, but I had found a lot of stuff out there that helped me build the business, maybe now it's my turn to give back to the community. Maybe now it's my turn to share what I learned. Maybe it's my turn to share what I did, what worked for us, what didn't, so that other people could figure out um, how they can apply this to their own business. So that kind of started me thinking about how I can help other founders. Because I was already in a position, like you said, we sold the, the business for a pretty solid amount of money, that made us think about not ourselves anymore because we were good. So now we could help others. And the first thing was, okay, let, let's start a blog. Let's just write about this. Let's take little topics and write as much as I know about them and just put that out there. And that's exactly what I did, right? The Bootstrap Founder, the blog, and I guess this podcast as an extension of it came from that moment of deciding that I wanted to share what I knew. And I started working on it, uh, on it in November 2019, just writing as much as I could. I had 10 blog posts ready when I launched the blog. And then I just wrote something new every week on a, on a topic that I had collected, I guess, in a list of topics that I wanted to write about, which still exists. And I'm not even halfway through. And this is now a year in, right? So there's still some good stuff coming, I guess. But the point was, I just wanted to continuously and reliably provide value to this community that had provided so much value to me. And then from that came all those blog posts every single week in the newsletter, in, in this very podcast. 
And at some point I figured, oh, okay, this looks like it's a more comprehensive unit. I could kind of turn this into one big thing. And that's where my compendium came out of. And then people told me, this is cool. I could see this being a book. And then I thought, well, I, I guess I'm going to write a book then. <laughs> I mean, if my audience tells me that there's something that they really need and they would pay money for, that's kind of the best validation you can get. So I started writing more the chapters that I hadn't written about in the articles just yet. And then I consolidated all of this into Zero to Sold and had a couple of professional editors look into it and self-published a book and went through that whole process, which was a whole nother learning for me, which I also wrote about in another blog post. This is, is kind of the approach is I do a thing, I learn something about it, and I communicate it. And in communicating, I learn another thing. And then I do something about that, and then I communicate it again. I think you'll find that a lot. That's kind of the serial entrepreneur approach. Um, that kind of now is oozing also into not just building new businesses, but also actually building um, it's some sort of teaching layer around it as well. Like people that have success, they continue to have success and they have success in actually communicating their success to other people. It's a bit meta, but I've seen this a lot in entrepreneurs, particularly in the SaaS space. You have a lot of people that had success with businesses that wrote books about business and then continue to go into detail either on some parts of it in more writing or in more acting on it and building, I don't know, investment funds or new SaaS businesses around it. Right? It, it turns into this whole ecosystem centered around the brand of a successful founder. So I find that very interesting, and I'm um, working on collaborations with other people. And the purpose of all of this, the underlying purpose is to help people. Right? The, the underlying pur purpose is to make it easier for people like myself, who I was like five years ago before I knew all of these things, to get to a point where I am now without falling on my face too often. Right? Zero to Sold, I, I wrote this book not necessarily to make money. It's definitely not priced to make money. But I wrote it for the person that I was five years ago. Because all of the things in the book, I would have loved to know. I would have loved to know how to hire people correctly and how not to shy away from that because I had like weird notions of what hiring should be looking like or how to build a sustainable business without um, burning out. Or how to build, even from the tech perspective, how to build a good infrastructure that is both adaptive and not too complicated. Like all of these things were learnings that I had building the business and they're all in the book because I've shared everything that I've learned during those years. But I had to learn them the hard way. And if the book helps even just a couple founders not having to go through all of these things the exact same hard way, then I think my, my purpose is fulfilled. So that is why I'm doing it. Um, I still caution against jumping into something completely new immediately after selling the business, particularly if you're already on the verge of burnout. Um, that's where I was at the end, I guess, before we got acquired. We were just two people running a business with over 5,000 customers and 55k MRR. There's a lot of pressure, both real and a lot of it also imagined on you as an owner of the business and as an operator in the business to do the right things. And those right things in those two particular roles are not always the same, right? As an owner, you could make a choice that for the operator is completely incomprehensible. And the same way as the CTO of the business, you could make a tech choice that for for an owner wouldn't make much sense. And if you're the same person, you kind of have to juggle that. And that's that's also not very easy. So the moment you sell, at least take some time to reflect on why you want to work on stuff, not necessarily jumping right back into the work-in and doing more things. 
I think it's a, it's a good opportunity to, to reflect on where you want to go and where you want to be and what you want to do. You don't necessarily have to jump into the doing just yet. You have some time. And I think I skipped that reflection part a bit. Only recently have I come to actually understand it, both by actually being on podcasts and talking about it and by having people ask me, like you did just now, so I could kind of give you my immediately unfiltered opinion about this. So the moment you sell, you have a lot of opportunities and a lot of people will come knocking on your door as well. So better take a break, say no to a couple of things and just really reflect on what you want to do. Um, but if you have a passion in life, and I found this to be really just communicating with people and helping them accomplishing their own goals, which I guess is one of the passions that never grows old because there's always more people to help and there's always more support to give and more people to to elevate and to empower. That If that's what you want to do, I highly recommend it. But if, if you just want to go and build your next business, build it even bigger, that's also perfectly fine, right? We have all these choices after we sell a business because now we are in, the, in this kind of group of people who've done it successfully as a founder. And the moment you are there, you get a lot of things. You get a lot of invitations. You get a lot of options and a lot of opportunities. And it's completely up to you to decide if you're going to act on them or if you're not going to. But I, my passion has been helping and I'm going to continue doing this. So thank you for the question. I hope that helped you. So, so I'm, yeah, I'm very grateful for you sending in this very first question. So thanks, Damon. Thank you for listening to the Bootstrap Founder Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Arvid Kahl, A-R-V-I-D-K-E-H-L, and you can check out the blog at thebootstrapfounder.com. You can find my book, Zero to Sold, at zerotosoldbook.com. If you have any questions about this episode, reach out on Twitter, send an email to arvid at thebootstrapfounder.com, and if you want to support me in the Bootstrap Founder Podcast, please leave a rating and a review by going to ratelistpodcast.com slash founder. It'll help other founders or founders-to-be to find the podcast and learn more about starting, running, and selling their business businesses. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day. Bye-bye.